1: Welcome, everybody, to the third episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast. Matt and I are coming to you guys live from Tampa, Florida. Um, so, we have some business down here this week. So, uh, we came down to see some clients a couple days ago, and we are recording in a Marriott hotel right now. So, uh, good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Mark. I'm excited for today's podcast. Yeah, me too. Um, So as always, we're going to start by just recapping the performance uh, for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. Um, So the S&P 500 is up 1.6 for the month and up 19.27 for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average is up 1.58% for the month and 17.22% for the year. The NASDAQ is up 2.1% for the month and up a little over 23% for the year. The Russell 2000, the small cap index, is down 0.7% for the month and plus 16% for the year. Uh, And the international index, uh, excluding the United States, is down 0.2% for the month and up 12.23% for the year. Uh, The three-month treasury yield currently sits at 2.2%. The two-year treasury yield is at 1.82%. And the 10-year treasury yield uh, currently sitting at 2.07%. And these numbers are uh, of midday today on July 11th. Um, So with that being said, Matt, what are some things uh, from the past week in terms of big news headlines or current events that uh, you'd like to discuss today?
2: Yeah, Mark, I got a couple actually. So the first that comes to mind has to do with general economic news in the Federal Reserve. So to be more specific, right now the next Fed meeting, as you heard from last week's podcast, is July 30th and 31st. Okay. And what the anticipation is of Wall Street is that the Federal Reserve is going to cut by a quarter of a point or 25 basis points. Correct. I think we're going to be in a situation here short term where good economic data could be a negative for the stock market. And the poster child for that was the Friday jobs report. Mm -hmm. So the first uh, Friday of every new month, the U.S. government reports the prior month's jobs here in the U.S. Well, what happened was, is as that report came out last Friday, it was stronger than anticipated. And what happened to the market? Sold off a little bit. Mm -hmm. So I think the risk for the market as it becomes more and more fixated on the Fed and less on, say, U.S.-China trade is any further strong economic data could be a negative for stocks. And it's something that I think investors need to be paying attention to, that this opposite
1: phenomenon could begin. Exactly. Exactly. And with the strong jobs report, too, it was widely anticipated, like uh, like you had said, um, that that would be a negative for the markets, and the markets did sell off. However, um, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, testified in front of Congress yesterday, and his uh, report said that there is a growing case for a rate cut um, yeah. in July. So there's uh, a little pop in stocks, I guess you could say, off of that news uh, As he kind of came today. in and said that.
2: Yeah. I think um, the justification that they're going to support this
1: with is the
2: strengthening dollar, Mm -hmm. right? As our uh, interest rates compared to um, other countries around the world are a lot higher. And there's been a lot of money internationally that's been flowing to the the U.S., Mm -hmm. specifically into U.S. Treasury bonds. And I think their cover for the uh, potential cut at the end of the month will be the strengthening dollar we'll have to see if that ends up being
1: the case. Yeah, exactly. Right now, it's just a waiting game until uh, the next Fed meeting. Um, So we're getting ready, uh, rolling in hot to Q2 earnings season, Matt. So do you want to touch on that a little bit? Absolutely. So to explain what that means is
2: every publicly traded company has to report their earnings on a quarterly basis. For for the second quarter, which would be April 1st to the end of June, uh, a majority of companies report from you know, mid-July to, to mid-August. And um, those stocks tend to make larger movements around those earnings announcements. So that's just something that um, if you see some uh, volatility um, starting to come up um, over the next couple of weeks, that could
1: be a reason why you're seeing that. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. Um, and then not to not to say I told you so or we were right, but Um, Matt mentioned um, some news about uh, Deutsche Bank last week that um, actually turned out to be uh, true sooner than we had anticipated. So do you want to just touch on that again, Matt? Yeah.
2: I mean, so last week we were talking about what we call black swan events or things that the market was not yet pricing in as a potential risk, right? So I was highlighting examples of the overall, say, financial health Mm -hmm. of a lot of these European banks. And the poster child um, that I've thought for some time has been Deutsche Bank. You know, um, their balance sheet is not healthy. The amount of counterparty and derivative risks that's out there is very high. So lo and behold, we we do that podcast last uh, Thursday. On Monday morning, uh, they slash upwards of 20% of their workforce. They're getting rid of two of their key business units, and they are going to be writing off additional debt. So is it going to be enough to actually um, turn that bank around or say if others do it in Europe? It, it's we'll have to see. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the biggest thing they didn't do back in 07-08 financial crisis is they did not do the kitchen sink write-offs like the American banks did. So I still think that's a potential risk that down the road, if you have any sort of country leave the European Union and the... Explicit understanding right now is that the ECB, which is the European Central Bank, is going to back these banks, Mm -hmm. right? Because they're so globally interconnected, and we talked about that last week, right? So, kind of like the Fed, we'll have to see what ends up happening, yeah, exactly. But, um, you know, it's interesting how we talk about that, and then a couple business days
1: later, boom, there's the headline. Yeah, and I even read some reports that, um, you know, it got to the point at Deutsche Bank where some people in their workforce were uh, were drinking on the job because they didn't have enough to do during the day oh, my um, you know I don't know if that how, how true that story is or not but I heard that you know they had a lot of inefficiencies obviously and people didn't have enough to do during the day so they my resorted goodness. to drinking on the job which is obviously never a good thing so well it's just one of those things we were always looking
2: at what are the potential risks in the marketplace that no one's talking about or what could eventually come you know um, come around. And, you know, some of the health of some of these European banks is definitely one of those that I think that people need to be at least somewhat paying
1: attention to. Right, right, right. Um, So moving on to um, some headlines, uh, or excuse me, moving on to some articles and tweets and research that kind of caught our eye this week. Um, You know, I saw a tweet this week, Matt, this week, Matt, from um, Bespoke Investments that stated that the three-month Treasury bill has been yielding more than the 10-year Treasury for 30 days now. And um, it looks like from the previous two times this has occurred, where the three-month is yielding more than the 10-year, a major drop in the markets has followed it. And now, it doesn't mean that it's going to happen again. Just because something has happened a couple times in the past doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future. But it's definitely just another data point to take into consideration Um, when we're looking about at, you know, the future and what our investment thesis is. Um, And like I said, back in 2000 and back in 2008, uh, this occurred. And shortly thereafter, there was a pretty significant drop in the markets.
2: Yeah. I mean, Mark, here's my two cents. You were kind of talking about the three-month T-bill and the 10-year treasury. I think if you also look at the 30-year yield that also has
1: inverted versus the overnight Fed funds rate. Yeah, and let's just pause there for a second, Matt. I just want to clarify what we mean by um, an inverted yield curve. Please, that's a great. Um, so obviously, when you invest in something, you're compensated more heavily the more risk you take, right? Yep. So if you buy a treasury um, that's 10 years out, you're taking more risk that, you might not get that money back. And we don't know what inflation is going to be, et cetera. Exactly. And usually, uh, in a normal environment, obviously, there's less risk if you invest in a three-month T-bill because you know there's three months until you get your money back, right? Sure. Um, but right now, the inverted yield curve, meaning that the three-month is yielding more than the 10-year, says to me, at least, Matt, that people are pricing in more risk in the next three months than they are in the next 10 years. Yeah, and there, I think it's also
2: pricing in this safe haven or, say, the anticipation that there's going to be more demand for safety-related investments like mm-hmm. a treasury. Yeah. Hence, that's why you have the yield less farther out. Right. And this is not a common occurrence. Mm-hmm. Okay? This is not common. So um, – Kind of going back, you know, Mark was talking about the three-month versus the 10-year. If you look at the 30-year, which is even farther out, and you look at the overnight Fed funds rate, it also is inverted. And if you look at some of these warnings, say, ahead of the great financial crisis, you know, uh, the tech bust of the early 2000s, the um, Asian financial crisis um, of the late 90s. Uh, The savings and loans crisis in the uh, 1980s double-dip recessions, you know, there was only one false signal of 1986 where in the short term there wasn't some sort of sell-off on the horizon, whether that was a couple of months down the road or a couple of years. You know, statistically looking back, this tends to not be a very good indicator.
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's just another thing to take into consideration Um, definitely when you're looking at how to position yourself, uh, especially going into an election year in 2020. Absolutely. Um, So that's something that we're going to keep an eye on. So um, I hope Matt and I did an okay job of explaining that. But all that is telling us with the yield curve inversion is that people are pricing in more risk in the near term than looking out uh, 10 or 30 years right now. And typically, um, you know, that's not a, a great sign for the markets. So there was another chart on Twitter from Bank of America Merrill Lynch um, that I saw that shows that while we're making new highs in the S&P 500, it's not accompanied by a euphoric over-optimism in terms of investor sentiment. So the survey that I was looking at was the AAII, which is the American Association of Investor Sentiment Survey. Um, And it just gauges the optimism and pessimism of investors in the market, retail investors in the market. So in the past, when we've made new highs in the market and there is higher than normal optimism that stocks will continue to move higher, um, we've seen some pretty good sell-offs. So for example, back in June of 2018, right near the top uh, before we tumbled down almost 20% in Q4 of 2018 investors were overly euphoric and overly optimistic that the stock market was going to continue to make new highs. So from there, as you know, Matt, we saw the Mm -hmm. largest sell-off that we've had in a decade. In a quarter, correct. Uh, So the AAII survey has historically been a good contrarian indicator. Um, So when investors are overly optimistic, that usually could signal to us that there's a potential for a bit of a sell-off. And when investors are overly bearish on the markets, that has signaled that we could be in for a little bit of a stronger run up in the markets. Um, So I just wanted to point out that the current investor sentiment reading is still bearish to neutral, which would, with this indicator, lead me to believe that this bull market still has some room to run higher, even though we just did talk about some of the risks with the yield curve inversion.
2: Got it. And so, when some of those yield, ver- uh, yield curve inversions occur, they tend to not be an immediate indicator, right? Right. Right. So, you know, sometimes those things could be delayed upwards of eighteen months, mm-hmm. twenty-four months. Um, in for individuals listening to the podcast, I mean, you can go and Google the American Association of Investor Sentiment Survey. It's um, uh, it's public. You don't have to pay for a subscription to see yep. that data. Yep. And you know, my two cents is. Um, very similar to you, Mark, you know, short term with that to be bearish to slightly neutral, mm-hmm. that says to me that, you know, people are not overly committed to stocks at this point. Exactly. It's kind of the translation. Mm-hmm. So um, I would mimic what you said.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there's another another uh, side of the coin, I guess, to look at. Um, you know, we just have to take all of these data points in and weigh them uh, at the same time. And I remember Back in our newsletter um, that we send to clients every month, I think it was the um, the June newsletter, was that after a yield curve inversion, there have actually been more instances where the market has been up um, before the start of a recession. Made
2: a new high. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yes. Um, so the yield curve inversion doesn't necessarily stay, oh my gosh, we're going to plummet from here. Instantaneously. Yeah. So there's definitely still more room, I think, to the upside too. Yeah. Um, So the last article I want to touch on before we talk about the financial planning topic of the week um, was a little bit of a a bombshell article that I saw in Barron's, Matt. Um, And it's titled Pay to Play by Mutual Fund Companies and Brokerages. Is it Hurting Investors? And this is by Darren Fonda um, from Barron's. So this is a topic that you and I discuss a lot, Matt, and it speaks to what goes on behind the scenes at large wirehouses, when they negotiate which mutual funds get put on their preferred platforms. Can you kind of just speak to that a little bit yeah, I mean, from your so, time at UBS? At
2: absolutely. Least? So I think what is very common in a lot of these firms is um, they will pay to have access to, say, certain models or certain, say, preferred um, access for advisors, or maybe they don't have to pay ticket charges behind the scenes. Right. And I think this article is coming to light because the SEC is adopting something called a regulation of best interest. And what they're actually going to force these brokerage houses to do is they're going to have to start disclosing these soft dollar arrangements. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what's happening is, is a lot of these fund companies are, are paying for shelf space. So I think the best way to give you an analogy, Mark, and you know this, but for the people listening to the podcast is when you're walking down that grocery aisle and you name the grocery store, anything that is at your eye level, that is shelf space that those companies are paying to have access to. And I think you're seeing a similar phenomenon in our industry. Now, uh, our practice, we mainly utilize individual security so we don't use a bunch of uh, third-party investments. But with that being said, I think what this article highlights is that, you know, if you're with XYZ firm and you're in their moderate risk model, mm-hmm. is that large cap growth fund really the most appropriate and best large cap growth fund that fits your goals and objectives and risk tolerances? Exactly. Or is it the fact that they wrote the biggest check to that firm?
1: Yeah, and it it takes a lot of players out of the market. When I talk about players, I'm talking about smaller mutual fund companies, say who only have assets that are 250 million compared to these big um, large powerful mutual funds that have billions and billions of dollars that can pay those fees to the large wirehouses whereas you know, 0.4% of $250 is a lot harder for the smaller mutual fund to swallow and pay these guys. Absolutely. So they're getting priced out of the market where their performance could be good. And an example in this article is um, a fund. It's called the YCG Enhanced Fund. um, And the ticker symbol is YCGEX. And as of the time of the writing of this article, um, you know, this fund was beating the market by nine points. But they're not big enough, so they're not on these preferred platforms, which means that a lot of investors don't have access to this fund. So, in essence, Barron was taking and highlighting
2: this example of this fund mm-hmm. and comparing it to the category of which it invests in, right? Right. And they were kind of highlighting that this is an example of a fund that, quote-unquote, can't afford those types of arrangements. Yeah. Hence, they don't get on the platforms, mm-hmm. right? Right. And so I think it's a good example by Barron's. And yeah, I mean, I think it's something investors need to be aware of. But I think what you're going to find, Mark, is over the coming months and coming quarters, a lot of these firms are going to have to disclose this
1: stuff in the fine print. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's already coming out. Um, But, you know, as as crazy as it sounds to some people, the revenue sharing uh, deals are legal. Um, So the You know, in quotes, pay to play arrangements between fund companies and brokerages have long been legal and have been around for quite some time. Um, You know, so that might be hard for people to swallow, but it does happen. And we're not saying that, you know, everyone and every wirehouse does this, um, but to a certain extent, or the ones that pay are bad. Exactly. Yeah. So, and to a certain extent, people just need to be aware that this could be the case and they just need to be asking the right questions to, their advisors and their brokerages and saying, "Hey, you know, is this going on here?" And if or it is, how are these funds selected that go into this model you have me in? Right, right.
2: Yeah. Are you making these decisions? Is your firm making these decisions? Mm-hmm. If your firm's making these decisions, are they? In, how are they influenced? Exactly. I think those are the really good questions that this Baron
1: article will will lead to. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So another thing that I want to point out too, and it's not all the time just like fees that these mutual fund companies pay to the warehouses. Sometimes these mutual fund companies sponsor conferences and Absolutely. they put on events for clients and that type of thing. So there's another soft dollar arrangement going on that you know even if they're not exchanging a check to get per, put on the preferred platform, there's other things going on behind the scenes that you know these mutual fund companies are paying for. Uh, for the wirehouses. Yeah, I mean, in the
2: 2000s, when I was at a wirehouse, it was very commonplace that um, advisors would kind of work with a quote unquote wholesaler from an XYZ fund company. Mm-hmm. They would put on, and I'll just joke about it, a chicken dinner seminar, right? And um, what do you think uh, that advisor might end up showing their client, that XYZ or a product or a fund from that company? Yeah. Yeah. And I think what's great is, is the industry's getting better and better uh, for pushing for disclosures so advisors can make – I'm sorry, for individuals,
1: investors – to make better informed decisions, right. right? Yeah, exactly. So definitely check this article out if you have a time uh, to look at it um, on Barron's. It's called Pay to Play by Mutual Fund Companies and Brokerages is Hurting Investors. Here, how, Here and, is how. And it was um, published on? Uh, July 6th. July 6th. July 6th. So you can okay. Google that and check out that article for yourself. It was a really good read by um, Darren Fonda again. Good piece, Mark. So moving on to the financial planning topic of the week, the financial planning topic of the week has to do with annuities. Um, So this was sparked by an article written in the Wall Street Journal back in March that I saw, Matt, by Kevin McAllister. Okay. And the article is titled, If you're considering an annuity, start by understanding what you get. Um, So I think the first thing to point out with annuities is they make it seem – very dandy with rainbows and butterflies on commercials, right? the guaranteed lifetime income. Um, And Kevin starts the article by saying, you've probably seen the commercials advertising annuities, but as common as the ads are, details about exactly what you get from buying one are scarce. And I think this is the part that scares me about annuities the most, Matt, is that insurance companies aren't always forthcoming with the details about their annuities.
2: I mean, if you look at some of the disclosures and how thick they are, I mean, some of them are insane.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and Kevin goes on to say that um, often mislabeled or misunderstood as an investment, an annuity is a product designed by insurance companies to hedge against the chance you'll outlive your retirement savings. So annuities at their core aren't generally used as wealth creation tools. Rather, they are risk management mechanisms. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I do for
2: the most part. I think that, you know, when people start looking at, you know, annuities and why they buy them, you know, this is my personal opinion, what I see people do is they want some sort of income guarantee, right? Right. And so that's the carrot at the end of the stick. Mm-hmm. But what's not spent time on is what you're giving up and either cost, opportunity cost,
1: i.e., returns to get the carrot on the end of the stick, mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, so, you know, Kevin continues on and says, you give some or all of your retirement savings to an insurance company and get a check each month in return. Guaranteed income is typically the selling point of the annuity as most policies will continue to pay you until you are no longer around to sign the checks. So essentially, Matt, you give the insurance company your retirement money and they just give it back to you in the form of a check and monthly payment.
2: Yeah, and, you know, depending upon the type of annuity, and I, we have to be very general. Yeah, exactly. You know, some of these are situations where they're taking your money, right? They're investing it, and then they're giving you a cut of that back. And but the for returns s- are capped. Returns are 4 capped. Four or five percent, and then they get to keep the rest that they They get to making. keep the rest that they make above that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for some people, when their head hits the pillow at night, they want to see that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something, uh, for what I would say, full disclosure, we use in our practice much at all. Um, usually we're, uh, inheriting a bad situation. Um, true. I kind of like to say tongue in cheek, some of these things are like getting a client out of a timeshare. Right. 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 It's, it's, it's not an exact science and it's never easy. Yeah. Um, but I think this is a really good article, um, that people could look at that say, they're in one, or someone's talking to them about purchasing one, I think based upon some of the talking points we're coming up with, as well as what they find on their own in this article, mm-hmm. I think it could help them make yeah. a better informed decision.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And you know, someone can make the argument that an annuity can protect against market volatility, which is true. However, if the insurance company goes belly up, they sold you the annuity You know, you're not really protected. Yeah, what's that guarantee worth, right? Exactly.
2: And this brings me back to when I was in the industry during the great financial crisis, right? So before the great financial crisis, you had these huge, huge insurance companies. And what did people think, Mark? They're not going anywhere, right? Right. And then next thing you know, um, I know the article alluded, uh, used uh, what AIG as an example. I mean, there was a very, very, there was a strong chance during that time. I lived through it that firms like AIG were not going to make it, mm-hmm. right? And so if it weren't for TARP, which was a bailout program uh, that the government did, it probably wouldn't be, Right? as an example. Mm-hmm. But there's no guarantee that if another great financial crisis comes along, that necessarily the government's going to bail out the banks again, mm-hmm. right? They're trying to change the way that they're interacting with these banks with reserve requirements, so they're not having to do that again.
1: And I think that's another valid point the article makes. Exactly. Yeah. And
2: this is not a government
1: guarantee, right? Right, right. And you know, we're not trying to rail on annuities and there are some good products out there, but it's just it's hard to find they have to be used for the right situation. Right. Okay. And you know, and a lot of the times what you know the insurance companies don't tell you is that if you pass away before your life expectancy, they get to keep the rest of the money. So if you hand over your retirement to them at fifty-five and you pass away at 65, the insurance company gets to keep the rest of that money that they didn't pay out to you.
2: Now, in real life, uh, folks, we see this. You know, we, um, we meet with people that will sit there and say, you know, um, I have an immediate annuity, and they don't even know what that means. And an immediate annuity is what Mark was alluding to, which is where you sign a check over to the insurance company in return for as long as your heart's beating They're going to give you a certain amount of money per month for the rest of your life. Well, guess what happens? Sometimes, depending upon your longevity, you win that bet, and in other times, you do not. So you know, imagine the look on this client's face when we told him, hey, based upon the contract that uh, you signed and the check you wrote, and um, this is what was sold to you, and unfortunately, when you're no longer with us, your wife's not going to get this income stream based upon this contract he had. You know, he was not a happy camper. No, and, no. you know, so we, we tried to help him plan around that that was something in his overall financial situation. But I think a lot of people, Mark, when they're being uh, presented these types of things, these are some of the minor details that
1: they leave out. that are kind of left out. Exactly. And that's the other benefit of keeping – Your money in an IRA, per se, because you can put a beneficiary on that IRA and leave the money to your spouse, or if you don't have a spouse, your kids or grandkids, and that money goes to them when you pass away. Whatever's left. Um, Now, there's riders and stuff that you can get on annuities, but all that stuff is going to cost you more money, and it's going to decrease your monthly payments back to yourself in retirement when you get these annuities,
2: right? One of the things that was told to me back when I started in the industry is, you know, these life insurance companies, you know, they don't own some of the biggest buildings in the world because they're stupid.
1: Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. They,
2: and make, they have to make that, money too. Always,
1: that point always kind of stuck in my head. Wrong, wrong true. Um, yeah. So again, another really good article in the Wall Street Journal that anyone can um, go look at. Again, it's called, If You're Considering an Annuity, Start by Understanding What You Get. And, and what was the published date? Uh, March 10th okay. of 2019. So that was another another good article that we wanted to touch on. Um, so we're going to jump down to some uh, questions that we've gotten from listeners, which Matt and I are very excited about. So we got our first three questions this week from people who listened to the previous two podcasts. So, As just a reminder to everyone, um, you can reach out to me at mark at jessupwealthmanagement.com or uh, follow us on uh, Twitter and tweet at us um, or on Facebook and LinkedIn and send in questions that you guys have questions about and we'll answer them on the podcast.
2: And all those links for all of our social media contacts are on our website to make it easy, just jessupwealthmanagement.com.
1: Yeah. Yep. So uh, the first question comes from Linda and Linda asks, do you recommend prepaying for your funeral? Why or why not? So thank you for that question, Linda. Matt, do you want to start with this one?
2: So I uh, this is how I usually answer this question, Mark when a client asks. I say this. If it's a situation where you want to plan some of uh, some of all the details, right? And so you take the um, need for your, a uh, surviving spouse or your kids to think about, you know, what would Matt want done? I think it's if you're concerned about planning out the details, love the idea, right? Or if you know for sure that you want to be in, say, that cemetery, or you know, uh, you want to be cremated, I would absolutely recommend it. You know, from a money standpoint, if you are younger and let's say you're in good health and you're under the age of seventy. It's kind of hard for me to look at a client and get excited about the fact of them tying up 10 grand that it's not going to have a return for 20 years yeah that, that's kind of my, my other side mm-hmm. so I would say if the client has a uh, emotional desire to plan the details, do it because you eliminate the return factor but you know if you're under the age of 70 and I'm making a very general statement here, it doesn't excite me the fact that a client's going to tie up that amount of money with no return for that period. Yeah, of time.
1: and especially if people don't have you know ten grand laying around, then they definitely shouldn't do it.
2: No. Um, so I think because a lot of times if something happens to someone and they say they have a small life insurance policy, you know, you can assign that life insurance policy, and that could take care of the cost of your funeral. And then after the dust settles, you know, they'll get their money from the insurance company. Mm-hmm. So I would agree with that.
1: Hopefully that answers your question uh, there, Linda. The next question is from Joe. And Joe asks, if we believe the market is going into another recession, such as 07 to 09, what is the best way to minimize losses in your employer's 401k plan that you contribute to every paycheck? Um, So I think this one, Joe, is number one, you know, be diversified in your 401k. Don't have all of your money in the S&P 500. I think that's the best way or the best action that um, employees can take in their 401k. Um, you know, so instead of just having 100% allocation to U.S. equities, if you have um, bond funds or commodity funds um, or international funds, have a diversified portfolio within your 401k. Now, I know you're limited to what you can invest in in your 401k, and there's only, you know, 10 or 20 mutual funds you can invest in, but just don't put all your eggs in one basket.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that statement. And, you know, ultimately what it comes down to is investing for your goals and your risk tolerances. You know, I think you got to approach it from this standpoint. If You are not going to be able to sleep at night if that account dropped, I'm going to use a fictitious figure, 10%. Then you need to make sure that you are designing an allocation that's going to be appropriate for that desire, right? Right. And I know one of the things that, you know, obviously we want to recommend is they should be seeking advice on that allocation, You know, some of the plans, they might have a representative that you might be able to get some advice from. Your own advisor can look at those funds and make a recommendation. Do you have any other ideas, Mark?
1: Yeah. So another thing I think people can do, and it takes a little bit more work um, than just changing what funds you're invested in, but you can go on different websites and you can just go to Google and type in um, investment correlations and you can type in the ticker symbols of the funds and have funds in there that are highly uncorrelated to each other, so that if one goes down, the other's going to go up. Absolutely. Um, so, and I know a lot of funds within a four hundred one k sometimes are highly, highly correlated. We see it all the time. But you know, like I said, if you have um, a bond fund or a commodities fund, typically they're pretty highly uncorrelated to say the S and P five hundred fund.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of times, let's say a four hundred one k plan has fifteen different investment options. It's not uncommon we might only tell people to cherry-pick three or four of those. That's because why? The other ones are pretty much invested the same
1: Same way. Yeah. So that's something we see all the time. Yeah, yeah. So go on Google and just type in investment correlation, and there's a bunch of calculators that will tell you how correlated these funds are to each other, and just try to find some that are um, a little uncorrelated to each other. Great. So the last question uh, we're going to go over today is uh, coming from Phil. So thank you so much for the question, Phil. Um, And Phil asks, I would be interested to know if Jessup Wealth Management would recommend mutual funds to accompany individual securities as a part of an overall balanced portfolio.
2: I'll take that one, Mark. You know, so the way that we run our practices, uh, we manage money by investing in individual securities on behalf of our clients. So individual stocks and individual bonds. Um, it's not very common for the industry that we're in. And that might be something as time goes on, we can always talk further about. Um, so I would be a proponent, uh, Phil, that if you have a, um, an active manager on your behalf, who is being proactive, that is investing in line with your goals and objectives and risk tolerances, because of the way we manage money, I would tell you to stick with individual securities if that's the case and you you trust these individuals. Um, If that's not the case and you're looking for um, a little bit better way to, say, control risk, then I think introducing, and part of your question, more balanced funds to that mix is definitely an option you could consider, but that's my thoughts. Mark, you want to add anything?
1: Yeah, I think I think that it does have a place, but going back to the different types of mutual funds, I think a bond fund or a commodity fund um, could be a good diversifier if you have a portfolio of individual equities. Great point. Um, so I think it makes sense if you're going to do something like that, but if it's just another basket of U.S. equities It's almost just diluting the portfolio more, Um, and, you know, you get to a point where you get over-diversified. Absolutely. When when you have hundreds and hundreds of individual security names, it's like, okay. You're pretty much going to do what the S&P does if it's all stock. Exactly, exactly. So from that standpoint, I don't think it makes sense. But again, if um, they're a different asset class, um, like commodities or – currencies or something like that, um, I think that could be beneficial, especially with helping diversify the portfolio and getting some more uncorrelated investments in there.
2: And Phil, I got one more point for you. It would have to be with the term rebalancing. So, you know, going into the accounts periodically, if you have a third party or a professional manager doing it for you, asking the question of how often are you going in here and doing a rebalance? So an example is, you know, stocks are hitting a 52 week high. Is there too much stock exposure in the account because that piece of the pie has grown so much? How often are they going in and adjusting that to make sure that the portfolio is in line with your risk tolerance? So, Phil, that would be my other point to kind of throw out
1: there. Yeah, that's a good one too. Um, So thank you, everyone, for your questions. Um, Again, Matt and I want the goal of this podcast – or excuse me – want this podcast to be driven by people who listen. So please keep the questions coming and Matt and I will do our best um, to answer all of them. And, you know, we're not going through and doing a whole bunch of research on this. We're kind of just seeing these questions for the first or second time right now and just answering them um, on the fly. So absolutely just the first thoughts that come to our head. So keep the questions coming. Um, and thank you everyone again for listening to the third episode of the Independent Advisors podcast. Uh, we hope you have a good rest of the week and a good weekend, and we'll be back with you uh, next
2: week. And we want going to give a special thanks one more time to the uh, Marriott at the uh, Tampa International Airport. They have uh, rolled out the red carpet for us. Uh, their conferences and events uh, division to allow us to use their facilities, so we want to give them a special thanks as well.
1: All right. Thank you, everyone. We'll talk to you next have week. Have a great weekend.
0: Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. And also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. Here you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to Mark. Mark at JessupWealthManagement.com, and we'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances.